Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, John McCormick, too. Uh, no, I'm David Sorn. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. We are, as you can see on the screen, only two weeks away from what will be really a historic day uh, in the life of our church, and that is the grand opening of this building. You know, our heart in getting towards this building, which we worked on for years and years and years and years, was always just to amplify what we were already doing. So we could have space to reach and disciple an even greater harvest for Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the things that we've said for a long time is that if you study the city, that an average of 85% of people in Blaine do not go to church. And that's true for some of the surrounding cities as well. And it's just crazy to think about because Blaine is growing fast. For the last 15 to 20 years, Blaine has consistently been one of the fastest growing suburbs in Minnesota. So now there are 65,000 people who live in Blaine. So you take 85% of that, that's roughly about 55,000 people. So that means 55,000 people aren't in church today in Blaine. That's a significant mission field right here on our doorstep. And from the day that we started this church, we always said our aim is not to like set up a new church in Blaine for Christians to go to. That's just different or maybe meets their needs a little bit better. Now, we think this is a great place for Christians to attend and grow deeper in their faith and grow deeper in community. But ultimately, Jesus has told us to go, to go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. We're to go to the lost. And there are a lot of lost people around us. Jesus says it's not, a health, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And so our aim has been in the name of Jesus to renovate this city. And honestly, we will not rest until every person in this city has heard the gospel. That's our heart. In fact, I think this topic of developing a heart for the lost is so important. It's just where we are at this critical juncture in our church that I want to take this morning and talk about that topic. You know, I think when you get to a grand opening, it provides really an incredible opportunity for us to help more people hear about Jesus. And one of the reasons is, this is just our American culture. You just say the two words, grand opening, and people in America are like, ooh, grand, what's opening, right? This is what we do, especially, I feel like, especially in the suburbs. And so a grand opening allows people to feel like they're on the ground floor of a new chapter. And so we want everyone to be praying about who is it that you can invite to come on the 19th to the grand opening? Because honestly, it's, it's easier to invite on September 19th than it even is on October 19th, which actually I'm pretty sure isn't a Sunday, so don't invite someone. But you get what I'm saying? There's just something about the grand opening that makes that invitation even easier. And so who can you be praying for to bring on that day? And I want to be clear, just so you don't see any contradiction here. What Grant said last week about evangelism and sharing your faith uh, was so right on. Because the reality is, if you think about people you know that don't know Christ, imagine like a continuum. And over here you have people who are really far from God, and over here is fully devoted followers of Jesus, and right in the middle is making a decision to follow Christ. There are some people in your life that are nowhere near even making a decision to follow Christ. They're way over here. And so if you were to ask them to come to church with you on the grand opening, they would probably laugh at you and mock you. you I'm sure you all have people like this in your life. And so the strategy for evangelism there, sharing your faith, is much more like what Grant talked about last week. It's that you're working together with other Christians, you know, evangelism is not a me thing, it's a we thing. It's working in hospitality 
It's just letting them see your daily life of following Jesus. However, a lot of us also have people that are on this side of the continuum, but they're much closer to following Jesus. If they just saw it in action, if they heard a clear gospel presentation, they would be ready to follow Jesus. And that's why something like a grand opening and using what I would just call invitational evangelism is also really effective. The the reality is we are a fan of any sort of form of evangelism you can think of. It's not just one way to do it for one person, but there are different times and different seasons where different methods are effective, and we're just in a season where this sort of invitational evangelism is going to be really effective for our church. And so if you have somebody in your neighborhood or in your family or at work or just a good friend, invite them to come on the 19th. I pray your heart is just growing towards the loss. And speaking of that, I want to talk about that as we prepare for grand opening. And so what we're going to do uh, today, September 5th, and then uh, next week, September 12th, is for two weeks, we're just going to do this short series called Preparation. And we're going to prepare our hearts for what God is going to do on the 19th. And so I want to talk about a really relevant passage in Scripture this morning, and that is uh, Romans chapter 9. So everybody grab a Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, this Bible's under the chair in front of you. We are going to be on page 773, just going to camp out in this passage in Romans chapter 9. Uh, you can use the Renovation Church app, just have Bible and weekly verses. Romans is a letter that's uh, written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early leaders in the Christian church, and he's writing to the Christians in Rome. And in chapters 1 through 8 in the letter, he's sort of explaining that Jesus is the answer to our need for salvation. And then when we get to chapter 9, uh, things start to change. Uh, by the way, when we get to grand opening on September 19th, that same day, we're going to start a six-week brand new series as a church, where for six weeks, we are going to walk verse by verse through Romans chapter 8 in the Bible, which many consider to be one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. And so, super pumped for that. But when you get to chapter 9, all the way through chapter 11 in Romans, Paul begins to talk about the Israelites. And for thousands and thousands of years, the Israelites were essentially God's people. But at the time that Paul is writing this letter, many or even most of the people of Israel have decided not to follow Jesus, God's Messiah. But Paul, who's Jewish by birth, he was an Israelite, has come to believe in Jesus. And so this letter really starts to show you his heart towards his people who aren't following God's Messiah. So look closely at his heart. So here we go, page 773 of Romans chapter 9, and we're going to start right at verse 1. So just read a couple of verses. Here's what it says. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Okay, so look at his heart here for the lost people of Israel, his family members, his friends that don't have a saving relationship with Christ. Look at verse 2 if you still have it out in front of you. What does he say? What's his emotions? He says, I have great sorrow. He's incredibly sad. Unceasing anguish. This anguish that he has for lost people around, it's just not even going away. And that's okay. You know, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 6, if you want to read it, that it's so Christians sometimes live in this state where we are sorrowful, yet rejoicing. 
You can carry both of those emotions at the same time. But Paul's anguish, this sadness that just lingers with him, is regarding the fact that many of the people in his life are going to suffer for all of eternity, apart from Christ. That sort of feeling doesn't go away. And I think we too as Christians would feel that same sort of sorrow and anguish had we not buried that theological truth so deep that we don't actually have to feel it. But Paul doesn't do that. Because to bury it away somewhere is to actually miss the heart of God. So look at verse 1 again. It's right here. He says, he, wa- he really wants to make you sure that you understand that this is the truth. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So he wants to know, what he's about to say about his heart is the truth. It is the tr- it's the truth in Christ. And it's even confirmed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, his heart for the lost is God's heart for lost people. Is it your heart? Your emotions. Not just can you logically say, oh, I think it's kind of sad. Do your emotions, does your heart look like Paul's heart in Scripture? Or have you like many Christians, maybe even most Christians, have you let your heart instead be consumed with the troubles of this world instead of the troubles of eternity? I think many Christians stress over all sorts of different things, right? From money to work to their looks to how likable they are. But we spend almost no time stressing over the things of eternity. I was reading a a book last month by the late great evangelist Leonard Ravenhill, And in his book, he was talking about this passage in Acts chapter 19, where there's these, I don't know if you've remembered it or not, maybe you've never read the book of Acts, but I'll explain it to you. Basically, there's these unbelievers, they don't believe in Jesus, and they're trying to drive out evil spirits. And they do so by using the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they're trying to drive them out by saying, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus by whom that Paul guy (laughs) preaches. And then one day the evil spirit talks back and says this. He says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) And then Leonard Ravenhill in his book, he asks this bone-chilling question. And he says, is your name known in hell? Or would the demon say, who's that? When you wake up in the morning, does evil say, oh no. She's up. (laughs) Do they say, oh, that woman. Or that man. His heart just breaks for the lost. And he's going to steal more people from us, from our pathway to hell today. Or does the enemy not even know your name? Because he doesn't need to. Because you do not concern yourself with the things of eternity. Is your name known in hell? Let's look deeper at Paul's heart. Because his heart is in the right place. They know who Paul is. Okay, look at verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. What is he saying? Well, the first thing that we have to notice that he's saying is that the people of Israel that haven't accepted Christ as their Savior are cursed and cut off from Christ. Okay, why does he use this word cursed, though? 
Now, that word cursed means something a little different in New Testament times than how we use it today. Because if I say someone's cursed, you think of like a witch or like a witch doctor putting a curse on someone else. But in the New Testament, it means more like a penalty, a consequence that we get for something that we've done. Uh, Paul actually elaborates on this sort of teaching a bit more in the book of Galatians. And so I'll just throw that up on the screen because we'll just go there quick. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. I was a little bit worried, but what it essentially means is that if you are trying to live by the law. like That's like the Ten Commandments, or just basic moral principles. It's this idea that if, if you're trying to live by that, even if you break one of them, you break one Ten Commandment, right? And you, you tell a lie. Well, you're under a curse then. You're going to have to suffer the penalty, God's justice and wrath, even if you sin one time. We talk about this a lot. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous, who's righteous in God's eyes? Well, the people who live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. So it's kind of like, you know the phrase, like those who live by the sword, die by the sword. It's the same sort of idea. If you're living by the principle that I'm going to get to heaven just because I'm a good person, you're actually going to die by that principle. It's not going to work for you. But verse 13, Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Some translations say on a tree, right? like a cross. This, now this is a quotation at the end here from Deuteronomy and Paul's using it to show us, this is fascinating, that Jesus frees us from the penalty, the curse of sin by becoming our curse bearer. We are freed from sin because Jesus himself became sin for us. Now, knowing that, so just diving deeper into the gospel like that, knowing how much Jesus loves lost people like us, that he himself was willing to be cursed, undeservedly so, to set you free, now look again at what Paul is saying, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those are my own race, the people of Israel. So Paul is saying that he wants his friends, his family members, to know Christ so badly that he's saying, for the sake of my people, I would be willing to be cut off from Christ. I would be willing to go to hell myself if it meant that my friends and family members could go to heaven for the sake of my people. That is the heart of God, friends. And how do we know that's actually not just Paul's heart, but God's heart? Because we just saw it in the gospel, right? Because Jesus' heart was so big for you that he was willing, for the sake of his people, he was willing to be cut off, to be cursed, so you could be set free. That's the heart of God. Is that your heart? Is that your heart for people who don't know Christ? Is that your heart for people who think differently than you? Or they live differently than you? Maybe they're on the opposite side of the political spectrum than you. 
What's your heart for them? You know, it's easy to say, like, again, I, oh, I feel sad about it, but ask some practical questions here. Ask yourself, what links would I go to for the sake of my people? For my friends, for my family members to be saved, to know Jesus. What risks would I take for the sake of my people, the people that God has put in my life that are currently on a path that leads away from him? Church, I, as a pastor, one of the things that I'm just worried about as I sort of survey the Christian landscape in America is I think we are losing God's heart for lost people. The heart that we see in Paul. Instead of feeling anguish over lost souls like the Bible says we should, I think it's actually more likely in America today that many Christians actually feel disdain towards lost people or even anger towards lost people, more so than anguish. Our hearts are just not in the right place spiritually. And then we use excuses, right, for not sharing our faith. We say, well, I'm just not gifted in that way, or honestly, I'm just worried it would hurt my friendship or my relationship with them if I shared about God. Let me read to you what I believe is perhaps the quote of the year to the American church. This is so needed right now. It's from Greg Steer. It says this, Far too many Christians who claim they're not gifted at evangelism spend a whole lot of time articulately arguing for or against masks and vaccines. You evangelize the things you are most passionate about. May we be far more passionate about Jesus than anything else. Somebody better say amen. Amen. Listen, this is such a good example. And let me tell you exactly why. It's because I cannot tell you how many people in the last six to nine months or something like that have come up to me and within five seconds, they're diving into talking about masks or vaccines. And I'm thinking, I just met you like five seconds ago. And I guess we're going there. All right, here we go, right? And for so many of us, even in this room. It's like we cannot wait to share our opinions on those issues. And here's what's fascinating. Even though we kind of know deep down inside that if I share my opinion with you on this, there's a kind of a 50-50 shot that you may actually be of the opposite opinion. And it may kind of make our friendship or our family relationship kind of awkward when I share my opinion on them. But we feel so much passion about it that we think, I, I gotta tell you what I think about this. And yet for years, for decades, basically since I became a Christian when I was 18 years old, I would say 80% of Christians that I know, when I really press them on evangelism, I say, why is it that you just can't tell your family members or your friends about Jesus? What is it? When I really get down to the core, they say, I guess, you know what I think it is, if I start talking to my mom or my child or my my best friend about Jesus, I think it's just going to change the dynamics of our relationship because I know that they disagree with me. But church, if we are willing to take a relational risk on these topics of the day that, yes, have earthly consequences, then why are we unwilling to take a risk on eternal issues that have eternal consequences? 
What is it going to take to get our heart passionate about winning our friends to Jesus? Not to just an argument of the day. You know, one way we could ask this question is to say, well, how is Paul doing it? Why was Paul such a good evangelist? The number one reason is his heart bled for lost people. And I would even add his eyes were wide open to their coming plight. He didn't bury it. Let me dare you to do something this afternoon. It's very practical. I'm not just saying this theoretically. I want you to actually do this. This afternoon or tonight, I want you to walk around your block. I want you to leave your phone at home. Just walk around your block. I want you to pray. And more specifically, I want you to count. I want you to count houses. Statistically, if you live in this county, you can go through and you can count one, two, three, four. Four out of every five houses are full of people that if nothing changes, they will spend eternity apart from Christ. Walk around your neighborhood and you ask God to break you. Of our own earthly obsessions. We need the heart of Jesus. Do you remember this when we were going through the book of Luke in the spring, early summer? What does Jesus say? He's coming into Jerusalem and he looks down at the city at the people who are going to murder him in five days. What does he say? He says, if you had only known what would bring you peace. And he weeps over the lostness of the city. We need God's heart. You want to be more effective for Jesus? You want your name to be known in hell because you're so effective for the gospel? We've got to get our heart right. I think of one of my heroes of faith, the founder and the leader of the Salvation Army, William Booth. In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the Salvation Army wasn't just a group ringing the bell with the red kettle. They were an absolute evangelistic force for the gospel. They brought masses and masses and masses of people to Jesus. And they set up these Salvation Army stations all over the world because they were, think about what the name is, right? They were a Salvation Army and they led people to Jesus. Well, at one of these such stations in the early 1900s, there was a station right outside of London that was having just absolutely zero results. Nobody was coming to Christ after years of work. And two of the leaders there were these sisters, Kate and Mary Jackson. And the Jackson sisters decided to write William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. And here's what they wrote to him. They said, would you kindly move us to another station? We are so tired. We are so disheartened. We have tried everything we've been taught to use. And maybe you feel that way right now as you're looking at someone in your life that just hasn't accepted Christ. You're like, I'm just, I, don't even, I don't even know anymore. We've tried everything. And then they said, please move us. William Booth sends this famous telegraph back with just two words. And here's what he wrote. He wrote, try tears. And they did. And they went to God. And first and foremost, they begged God to change their heart towards the lost. And they went to God in tears over the lost. And God brought revival to their city. 
But it starts with that. We've got to move beyond the theoretical. Like, oh, yes, it's unfortunate that people aren't. You've got to walk around our neighborhood and say, God, would you break me? Would you break me for this? For the sake of my people, would you move my heart? And church, that is what we need to do. We need to ask God for his heart. And so here's what we're going to do as a church. A couple things, actually. As we prepare for this sort of second wave of God's movement in this year, it's just 14 days from now where we think a lot of people are going to meet Jesus on that day and certainly in the months and months to come afterwards. More than anything, we need to pray. We cannot solely rely on marketing methods or this building. We can't say, oh, great, we put up a whole bunch of signs and we got this beautiful building and that's going to raise the dead to life. It's not going to happen. We need to be smart. Certainly you need systems and infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. That's just being wise. But without the heart of God, without the power of God, you cannot bring the dead to life. So the first thing that we're going to do is actually something that is unprecedented in the history of our church, but we just believe the Holy Spirit is leading us here. Here's what we're going to do. Starting a week from tonight, we are going to hold nightly prayer meetings for seven days every single night leading up to grand opening from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. right here in this room. And we're going to come to God and we're going to ask him to help break our hearts for the lost and to move through us so that people would know Jesus. We're going to pray individually. We'll have a lot of silent time for prayer and reflection. We'll pray some in groups. My heart, this is what I want. I want every single person in this church to come to this at least one time. Some of you are going to come two or three nights. Some of you are going to come every night. I want you all to come at least once and pray with us. We're going to have children's ministry every night of that week from birth to six years old. So that's not an obstacle to you. If you've got an elementary kid, bring them with to pray. But come and pray that God would move. You know what? The reason that we built this building in the first place was for the sake of our people. It was for the sake of our city, for the sake of our county. It was for the sake of our family members that don't know Christ, so they would have a space to meet him. Secondly, I believe another thing that we can do practically right now is pray that God would use each and every single one of us individually to help reach people for Christ. Our people, the people that God has put in our sphere. And maybe for you, you're thinking of somebody that's pretty far away from God. Doesn't matter. Starts with prayer. And maybe you're thinking of some people that are a decent amount closer. It starts in prayer. What I want you to do right now is I actually want you to look under the chair in front of you and uh, pull out. There's a little kind of rectangle card. It has three lines on it. So everybody just take a second and grab that. And what you're going to see when you find that card is there's a space on there to write the names of three people that could theoretically come to this space in two weeks so don't pick somebody who lives in Albuquerque, right? Three, I have no idea why I just said Albuquerque. Somewhere in my subconscious, for I'm going to pray for Albuquerque today. Three lines for three people that could come in two weeks that you want to pray for and you want to help, that you would take a risk for the sake of my people. Three people that you want to pray for. And then what I want you to do is a couple things. I want you then to get your phone out. I want you to take a picture of that card Save it on your phone. Maybe even put it on your lock screen so you can see it. 
and keep praying for it. And then during our final worship song, what I want you to do is after you've taken a minute to just pray over those people yourself, I want you to get up out of your seat and I want you to walk to the front. And we have four buckets here on the front of the stage. One over there in the corner for you all over there. One here, one here, and one in the corner over there. And I want you to drop it in the bucket. And then this is what we're going to do. We're going to have our prayer team pray over the names that you give us every day for 14 days. How cool is that? We want to help you in this. We want to battle with you in this. And so take some time and pray over that and write them down, take a picture and bring them up here. And we're going to trust God for big things. I got to tell you, God can do big things. Some of the most remarkable salvations that we've seen in this space since we've moved in here have actually been people's family members coming to Christ. There have been multiple people in this church who have told me a story that looks something like this. They say, I've got this adult child or spouse and I've been talking to them for years about God, sharing with them. I pray for them every day. And every time I would go to church, I would say, I'm going to church. You want to come? And for years, it was just, I do not. And then one day I just said, I'm going to church. You want to come? And out of the blue, they said, yeah, I do. And God just started chipping away at the hardness of their heart. And eventually they came and eventually they turned their life over to Jesus and Jesus is radically transforming their life. But what is happening in that moment? where the chipping starts hardening, starts moving, and, 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 the, and the, the hardness starts falling off. What's happening is that's prayer. Here in this space, we pray the impossible because God makes the impossible possible. So write down the names, three people, take a picture, pray over it, and any time to this last song, I want you to bring it up, and then we will pray over your people for 14 days. And if you're here this morning and you have some anguish over your own soul, And you're not sure that if you were to die today, that you would be going to heaven and you need forgiveness yourself. I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves you so much that he died on the cross for your sins. And if you would believe in him, he would wipe away all of your sins. So that's you and you need to know more about that. You want to maybe start following Jesus. As everybody else kind of comes to the front, I actually want you to go out into the lobby and I will meet you out there and I can help you get started in that, okay? All right, let me pray that God moves mightily. Lord, thank you for what you've done in this church. Lord, more than anything right now, we pray that you would just break our hearts for the sake of our people. May this not just be an intellectual concept to us. May we be like your servant, the Apostle Paul. Just in anguish, broken up about it. We won't move until our hearts are moved. And so we just ask that you would move our hearts. I ask God all these prayers that will go up in the next 14 days over these cards and our meetings, Lord, that you would hear it, that you would bring some sort of revival to this city. We know you can do that. So we ask for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.